Um, Hebrews 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there, today's not going to be uh, too uh, long, but it's going to be a little in-depth. And um, so I just want to, I want to teach a little bit today. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, I'm not going to start with, um, with a bunch of stuff that I wrote this week. We're just going to jump right into Hebrews 1. So uh, starting in verse 1, and we will just go from there. Verse 1, Hebrews 1. I hear pages stopping, turning, so I'm assuming that means everybody's there. If you don't know where Hebrews is, just look in the back, somewhere around the back. So, uh, right before Revelation, a little bit before Revelation, a little after all the Paul stuff. Anyway, all right. Uh, Hebrews 1, verse 1. In the past, in the past, I want you to really pay attention to the language. Because it's smaller today, a lot of people are out on uh, Memorial Day and Bachelorette's weekends and and all this other stuff that's going on. Um, If y'all got stuff, just feel free to toss it out today. Um, or question, well not questions, actually don't do that, but um, do that after. Um, but anyway, because I want to stick to what we're talking about. But anyway, if you got anything, throw it out. Verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Listen to the language. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Verse 3, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let me me stop real quick. I need to give you some context so you know what we're reading. Hebrews, number one, is a sermon. So the, the style of the writing of Hebrews is a sermon. So it doesn't start like, you know, Paul's letter to, well, I'll just give you a quick example. Um, Let me just find one. Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers, grace and peace be with you. That's a letter, right? From Paul to you guys. Hebrews is a sermon. It doesn't start out, the reason we don't know who wrote it is because it doesn't start out like that. Um, The more you study, the more it does kind of seem like Paul did, but either way, it's neither here nor there. So it's a sermon. So it's from a pastor to a congregation. It's a sermon, okay? Number one, I told Isaiah this this morning, but it's, it's amazing. Reading the Bible is uh, 50% reading and 50% knowing the context within what you're reading. You know what I mean? So like, and I'll show you, we're going to hit a really good example of this in a second. So the writer, the pastor, is writing to a group of people who are in the church. They're in. But it's primarily a Jewish audience who has essentially fizzled out, and now they're thinking about going back to Judaism because they've kind of fizzled out on the church stuff. So, very relevant, right? And so, when you read this, number one, read it in terms of this is a pastor speaking to a specific congregation to a specific situation, right? Um, This is not just a, now it can apply generally, of course, but this is not just, I'm going to write a general theological writing to the church at large for over history. This is a, I'm going to write a sermon for a particular group of people walking through a particular thing, right? Really cool. So as I read this, I want you to keep that in mind because not all of this language can just apply generically however we want to in evangelical America. So you'll see this in a second. Verse five, "For for to which... To the angels, excuse me, for to which of the angels did God ever say, 
You are my son, today I've become your father, or again, I will be his father, he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now, in case you haven't caught this, this is all quoting Old Testament Scripture. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's a lot like, a, I mean, you can see the sermon all over this. So, all that I just read to you is, is quoting the Old Testament, and it's about to continue that. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. 11. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those, or excuse me, to serve those who will inherit salvation? Chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, talking about the old law, verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Okay, the apostles, etc. Verse 4. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, Spirit distributed according to his will. Verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him, you made them a little lower than Elohim, which is God, not angels. You crowned them with the glory and honor and put everything under their feet. What's so interesting about what Hebrew says about this verse, which is in Psalm 8, and what the actual verse in Psalm 8 says, it changes the, the person that it's talking about. If you go back to read Psalm 8, it'll say something like this. Who is mankind that you're mindful of them, um, that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than Elohim. Now, listen to what it says here. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You have made them a little lower than Elohim. You've crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. What, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's taking uh, Philippians. Psalm 8, I just read Philippians to give you an example. He's taking Psalm 8 and he's placing it into the context of the group of people that he's teaching to. And he's saying, when you read Psalm 8, Psalm 8 is ultimately talking about you who are in the church. Why would you, and I'm about to read this too, why would you want to slide back into what preceded where you are when you are what you want to slide back into was talking about? You're in that right now. Why would you want to go back to the preceding idea of the kingdom when you're in the actual reality of the kingdom? This is brilliant. So, uh, continuing in verse 8. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. He's talking about you and I. Yet, 
at present we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10. Y'all good? Um, verse 10, and bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. He's using their and them language to connect it to those who are included in Psalm 8, which he just mentioned, right? What is mankind that you're mindful of them, that you care for them? You've made them. Who is them? Mankind. Mankind. Right, So, when he's talking about and bringing many sons and daughters glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Who is he talking about? Mankind. Verse 11. Come on, come on, come on. The one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing uh, your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am, the children God has given me. He's quoting so much scripture here. It's not even funny. Verse 14, y'all thought I was bad. Since the children have flesh and blood... He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. The Greek word is diabolos, which is false accuser. So let me read it like the Greek says. Okay? Um, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power over, uh, excuse me, the power of. Him who holds the power of death, that is the false accuser. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Were held in slavery by their fear of death. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels uh, he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was being tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And if you go through the rest of Hebrews, I I just want to encourage you to read this like it's a Sunday sermon. Sit down and go from start to finish. You know what I mean? And uh, what I just did, I hate doing with this, which is stopping it at chapter numbers. I hate that. Because what you're about to go in is, is making so much sense of what I just said. It's not even funny. Um, but for the sake of time today, I'm going to just stop right there at Hebrews 2. All right. The most important thing to know when reading Hebrews, just to reiterate, is the audience the sermon was written to. This was written primarily to a group of Jewish Christ followers who have started questioning some things and wonder if they should go back to Judaism and the law. When we read a sermon like this, but we don't know the audience that it's talking to, we take blatant language for that group of people broadly out of context. Okay? And we do this in, in, for example, we do this in uh, chapter 3, verse 12. If you go to chapter 3, uh, verse 12, excuse me, I, uh, I misquoted that. I misquoted that. Um, if you go, excuse me, if you go to chapter 2 and start with verse 1 and then go down to verse 4, 
specifically to verse 3, and you're just reading this from the surface level, you know what you're going to start doing? You're going to start making inferences, or you're going to start taking things out of this that this is not talking to because you don't know who the people he's talking to are. You know what I'm saying? And so when we read the sermon like this, we have to know the context. So what are the main points of Hebrews 1 and 2 in light of the audience and in light of the fact that this is a sermon? This is what I really want to talk about today. What are the main points in these first two chapters that the the pastor, let's call him, in this uh, sermon is talking about? Okay, number one, if you're taking notes, he says that in the past, God spoke through prophets, or we might say a third party. But today, right now, he speaks by his son, who is God. In other words, in the past, God spoke through someone, but now he speaks for and through himself by the Son. Okay? Number one, that's point number one that he's trying to make. In the past, our ancestors heard things through the prophets. Now we know things clearly because God spoke them himself through the Son. Why is that important? Remember, this group of people are wanting to go back to Judaism, which was primarily hinged upon by the prophets. We got this through the prophets. We got the law through the prophets. We got the words through the prophets. And the writer, the pastor of Hebrews is saying, in the past, God spoke through the prophets, but now he speaks through the Son. In other words, you're going to reject what has been made clear in order to go back to what is opaque. Doesn't mean it was wrong, right? But it just means up until the time of the sun, the Lord was speaking through a means that was like looking through a veil, or it was like staring into the fog. You could see things, you could make some things out, but at the end of the day, there had to come a moment when God steps in, the fog is cleared away, and you see things for as they really are. Yeah. yeah so I just wanna, I sure. Yeah. So, um, it reminds me of when you were talking about like how we settle for something. We want to settle for something cheaper when we're actually more. Yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And why would they want to do this? Because it is it is a lot easier to measure your works than it is to just believe that you are who he says you are. So it's it's a lot easier. I mean, this, this is the struggle that we have today, it, it, especially in the South, is that uh, people will, will stay in places that make them feel like they have to burn it out in order to make it in because that's easier than going into a place where you have to feel the tension of tradition that you grew up with and the reality that there's nothing else to earn. You almost get like squirmish. I mean, it's just like in worship. When Isaiah would hit a moment... I mean, you felt, you, we still feel this. When Isaiah hit a moment when there's just, it's just music and nothing, we do this every Sunday. There's just music and there's no singing. And you feel it inside is that, okay, we need to go on to the what's next. We need to hurry, we need to hurry, we need to get to what's next. We need to get to who's singing the next part. And it's because our whole lives, we've been trained that worship, in that example, is all about doing something. You got to sing. Somebody's got to say something here. Somebody's got to plan something here. It's got to be 20 minutes because after that it gets too long, et cetera, right? And so when you get in an environment that is pure worship, you feel the tension of this is how I grew up and this is pure worship and these two things aren't the same. 
And in that moment, you have to constantly choose, do I want what's pure or do I want what's comfortable? You know what I'm saying? And so for the Jews who grew up in Judaism that have made the decision to be in the church, but the church looks very different than Judaism, they're feeling this tension of, well, man, like we're kind of not doing anything. We had to slaughter things. We had to do things like this. We had to say certain things. We had to go certain ways. Certain people had to approach us by way of God, et cetera, et cetera. And now you're saying that God lives in us. We are a holy priesthood. There's nothing else to do. Jesus achieved salvation on our behalf. And you know what I mean? And it's almost like we're sitting around twiddling our thumbs. And so they want to go back to Judaism. Why? Because at least there's something to do. And in Hebrews 4, if you keep, this is why I say you got to read the whole chunk. He takes a whole chapter and talks about how the Sabbath is not a day, it's now a lifestyle, which makes complete sense. So that's point number one, that before God spoke through the prophets or a third party, but today, now, he speaks by the language of his son, through his son, who is God. So before he spoke through someone else, now he speaks for himself, okay? Which is why I say, and man, do I... I'll hit it in this point. I'll hit it in this point. Because there's another piece to what we've walked through over the past year. The Lord has started downloading, I think, is going to be maybe as radical as what we've been through over the past year. But I'll, I'll get to it in a second. Number two, that the Son, point number two this is making. The Son is the exact representation of God. Okay? Before God spoke through the prophets, today he speaks through the Son, and the Son, not the pro- and the Son is the exact representation of God. By saying this, the pastor is also saying that what was spoken in the past through the prophets was not the exact representation of God. It was a representation of God, but not the or excuse me, but not the exact representation of God. Now, here's where the Greek comes in to help us out a little bit when we don't understand this. Exact representation in the Greek is this word. It's character. Does that sound like an English word to you? Let's say, put a C right there. Character. The Greek word here, and I want to make sure I'm saying this right, is character, which sounds funny when we know the word character, right? And here's the definition in Greek. It is a tool for engraving. This is so cool. It's an engraving tool, okay? It's kind of like a stamp. So what this was is this was a mold that they would make so that when they're stamping or when they're using this to impress upon different materials, one thing, it was the same thing every single time, okay? So, so uh, kind of like a printing press, I guess, if you will, where once you load the content onto this printing press, as it prints, it's printing the same thing over and over and over and over and over, right? Because of what's engraved. That's what this is. It's an engraving tool. So what the pastor is saying is he's saying that the sun is the engraving instrument of God. Let me say it like this. What is this whole sermon about? It's why they should follow Jesus and not go back to the old covenant. So what the writer is saying is that the old covenant molded people by what they perceived about God, which fell short 
and was man skewed, which is how God wanted it to be, by the way. The old, this is the tension that people have today. How do you marry, and we've talked about this a lot, how do you marry the view of the Old, the old Testament God, like in the book of Joshua, for example, how do you marry that God and Jesus when they seem so different? There's one difference, and I mentioned this last week, I believe. There's one difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> there were people speaking by what they heard God say to other people. In the New Testament, God himself speaks for himself through the Son. Right? So, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is man. So Jesus comes into the picture to bring our adoption to completion, but in order to bring our adoption to completion, which was predestined from the very beginning, Ephesians 1.4, to bring our adoption into completion, he had to do two things. He had to undo sin, right? And number two, he had to fix our bad views of God that came primarily by way of the old covenant. That's not a bad thing. God ordained. See, I was talking to somebody this week, and we were, we were having this conversation. Uh, a PhD guy from Princeton Theological Seminary. We were having this conversation, and I said, you know, here's the crazy thing. When we talk about things like infallibility, which means the Bible is without error, you know, infallible. When we talk about things like that, what we're, what we're really saying is how we view the Bible is infallible. And if it ever skews to the right or to the left of what we believe about the Bible, suddenly we start questioning it as not infallible. That's not what the word means. Infallible or perfect, let's say, simply means that you're taking this for exactly what it was meant to be taken as. That's it. That's all that means. It's without error, which I completely agree with. N.T. Wright says it like this. This is the book God wanted us to have. Completely agree. I believe that in the Old Testament, we see mankind on their own trying to wrestle with who God is in the context of what they are walking through. In the New Testament, we see Jesus step into mankind and say, you guys did great, but y'all missed a lot. Moses said, don't murder. But I say, don't be angry. And you see him almost like a screwdriver. He's going in, and there's all these loose screws that he's tightening back up, right? The woman caught in the act of adultery, like I talk about almost every week, because it's huge. In the old law, you wrote, or you say that God told you, that that woman is to be killed. But I'm here now, and I'm speaking for myself, and I'm telling you that woman doesn't need to die. That woman is not condemned. You're condemned if you're the one throwing the stone when you got a plank in your own eye. You, you see what I'm saying? That, well, brother, that's not what the law said. And, and maybe, maybe there was some misinterpretation then. Because Jesus steps in and says, this is what God actually said, not what Moses... doesn't mean Moses was wrong. It means Moses was staring into the fog. But Jesus comes from the fog and tells us exactly what's behind it in order to clear it away. And we struggle... Well, bro, I just, I just don't know. I just don't know. The Father seems real angry. No. Man said the father was angry. Jesus steps in to say the father was never angry. You guys just got it off a little bit. 
And that's exactly what this is intended. That doesn't mean we question anything. That doesn't mean something's wrong. It means maybe how we view the Old Testament might be a little wrong. That's okay. Uh, okay. See, I have, to, I have to make this decision every week. Do I want to teach? Do I want to be, you know, teach you guys the truth? Or do I want to stick, you know, stick in the line of everybody that's, that's grown up and heard things that, that are just off? So anyway, the exact representation is the engraving tool. Jesus comes in as the exact engraving of God, and he comes into humanity in order to show us the exact representation of God. What, why is that so significant? Because now the exact mold of God, which you and I were made in, let us make man like God, has been revealed through God himself, which is the Son. Why go back to what was skewed when you have been given the exact representation of not only who God is, who you are? So you see how the, you see how the, how the book of Hebrews is starting to play out now. Why would you go back to what is skewed when the exact imprint you were made in has been made known to you? That's not the old covenant, who you are, and that resulted in your death. Let me read this to you. Let me read this. Real, 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 real familiar. This is what Romans 5 says. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased the more, 21, so that just as sin reigned in death through the law, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul is saying is, is the only thing the law was put in place for is to show you, you can't do this on your own, you never could. But if you want to try to do it on your own, here's a law, and I'm going to let you spin your wheels trying to make it to me until you get to the point you realize you can't do it. And when you get to that point, I'm going to find you, I'm going to rip you out, and I'm going to show you how this should have always been, and maybe then you'll be convinced that you can't get to it by works. Maybe if I let you spin your works out over and fail over and over and over and over again, when I find you and place your feet on a rock and put a new song in your mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, you won't be tempted to go back to where you know and have been proven has failed. I feel alone today. That's okay, y'all are quiet, real quiet. <clears throat> He's saying, live in what has now been revealed because that's actually who you really are. Verse 3, he's giving proof of and he's expounding upon, not verse 3, excuse me, point 3. He's giving proof of and he's expounding upon who the Son was and that the Scriptures through the prophets that they so readily want to go back to actually were pointing to him too. So, you see, so he's, he starts out and says, God spoke through the prophets once, but now he's speaking through the Son. Point number two he makes, why would you want to go back to what was kind of skewed to what has been revealed, which is actually who you really are? Point number three, even if you did go back to the prophets, all the prophets were pointing to was the Son. It, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is a pastor on a level that none of us have seen, which is probably why it was Paul. But like, you know what I mean? He's making this well-rounded point. I wish I could do this. Maybe I will. Right? They want to go back to the law. So he said, awesome. You want to go back to the law? The law, it's almost like a circle with three different points. He's like, the law 
was opaque. How do you spell opaque? Is this right? Is that right? Awesome. The law was opaque, number one. The sun is what's real. Okay? The law was opaque. The sun is what's real or clear. And even if you want to go back to the law, the law was simply pointing to the sun. The prophets. All they were doing was pointing to a day that the sun would make clear what was not clear. Okay? So that's point number three. And then point number four, which I'm going to hang out on, and this, this is where we'll, we'll, we'll live for the rest. He gives a warning. This is in verses uh, one through four in chapter two. And then he kind of expounds upon this the rest of chapter two. He gives a warning by a pastor to not drift from what they have heard through the Son, taught by the apostles, back into their old, dead ways of living. Let me give you some Greek. The Greek word for drift away, which we find, excuse me, which we find in verse 1, drift away, is, I'm going to try to pronounce this right, it's such an odd Greek word, especially if, you don't, if you're Southern English. It's parario, parario. And it means... To be lost. Okay? Let me just bring my little, my little notebook over here. It means to be lost, to flow by, and this is my favorite one, okay? Or drift by on the waves. Now, here's what, this, here's what this means. The image of this is to drift away. It's if you are on the ocean on a uh, tube, okay? And the waves are pushing you a certain direction. Have you, ever, have you ever been like on a boogie board or whatever out in the ocean and it's like you're not paying attention, you look three minutes later and you're like way away from where you started? So this, the image of drift away is you're on a tube, you're floating along, and you have completely passed where you were meant to stop because you're being drifted by momentum. That's what it means to be drift away, to, uh, to drift away, okay? It is drifting past your destination because you're pushed along by another current. And in that same verse, and when it says neglect, in, um, or excuse me, in verse uh, uh, 3, verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore or neglect so great a salvation? Let me just give you this. The word neglect is the Greek word amelio, and it means to be careless with. Okay? I'm going to piece this together in one second. Ooh. To be careless with. It comes from the word sozo, which is salvation. But here, this word means, it's soterie, which means deliverance. Deliverance is the word that it actually comes from when it talks about salvation. So when, it's, so when it says, um, if you ignore so great a salvation, it's neglect, Emilio, and then salvation here is not sozo. 
Salvation here is soteria, which comes from sozo, but it specifically means deliverance. Okay? Yes, exactly. In the old, here's what he's saying. In the old way that you want to go back to, every violation had a punishment attached to it. Therefore, how much more is the punishment? I'm going to explain this in a second. If you are careless with whom delivered you from that very system. The word punishment here, last one, means reward in the Greek. Reward. It is literally the compensation for your work. So, what is he saying? He's saying, let me just read this real quick. Verse 1, chapter 2, we must pay careful attention, that, uh, therefore, to what we've heard so that we don't drift past it, that we're not carried away by another momentum. Verse 2, for since the message spoken through the angels, angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its punishment, its reward, how shall we escape that if we ignore so great a salvation, or if we are careless with our deliverance. Why, why is this you? He, just to be clear, just to be clear, punishment is a reward, essentially meaning how much life you live in is determined by what you do with Jesus, whether or not you're careless or care for what you have been given through Jesus. The tension that the early church did not have, the tension the early church did not have, that we have, is how tethered our actions are to our identity. Okay? Because... This, when we read this, for example, when you see punishment, what's the first thing you think? Hell. Which I'm not saying is wrong. I, what I, but what I want to do is, I don't want to read this 10% right. That, sure, that could apply. I don't want to read it like that. I want to read this like I was given. So people that believe in the infallibility of the Word of God need to read it infallible. You know what I'm saying? Like... <laughs> You, for example, it's blown my mind. I, I got buddies that are King, but I say buddies loosely. I got buddies that are King James only people, and I'm like, that's not even the most. Act, but they, everything they everything is about the infallibility of the Word of God. I'm like, well, the King James is about the least accurate translation of the Bible now of any of the other ones. What they mean by infallible is exactly how we grew up. <laughs> but this is what we believe in America. We've been taught. And, uh, and Eric Peterson, this week, he's, he, he's the one, he mentioned this to me. He said, this, this whole thing of like doctrine of original sin, etc., all that stuff has been so lucrative for the church. They've built buildings, they've made billions of dollars off of the doctrine of original sin. And there's one problem. The Bible doesn't start with Genesis 3, it starts with Genesis 1, where he calls everything good first. Do you know what I'm saying? And he's like, but, but... If you scare people into thinking, unless they do this, you're going to hell, what happens? They show up, they tithe, they're involved, etc. So it's, it's lucrative. It's just wrong. You know what I'm saying? And so in the church, a lot of pastors, myself included, have had to choose, do we want to teach the truth at the expense of what a lot of people are going, a lot of people are going to become apathetic? The Hebrews did. This is, this is, this is in the Bible. 
I mean, this is like fresh on the heels of this thing, and they're growing cold. 2022, you start teaching the truth, people start going cold. You know why? Because there is no tending the fire at home because we weren't told about a fire at home. We were just told about you showing up to catch fire here and then go home to your dead dry home. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, that's just my little, my little rant. The, the, the early church did not, you can study this if you want, or you can just trust people who have spent years and years studying this, their identity was not tethered to their actions in the early church. Not, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about the Pharisees. I'm talking about those in the early church. Their identity was not tethered to what they did, which is why you get this, this, this odd tension that we place on the Bible, because you'll see things where Paul says, Christ died for everyone, etc. But then you'll also see things that says, uh, faith comes by works. And it's like, Wait a minute, there's no tension there. There is no tension between the identity of who you are and what you do with who you are. Those things aren't tethered. Those are two things running together, but they're not tethered. In America, for us, those things are absolutely one because we believe that everything has to do with what happens when we die. All of it. And because we believe that everything has to do with what happens when we die, everything that we do affects what happens to us when we die. And that's not what these guys are looking at. These guys are looking at a world that Rome has completely overtaken, and they're trying to figure out how do we live on earth as it is in heaven like Jesus just told us. How do we live on earth as it is in heaven now? So when it talks about the punishment, right, that you would receive or that you would taste if you escape, or excuse me, if you ignore or neglect or you're careless with so great of a deliverance, the punishment that it's talking about is this. When you live by the law, you were dead. That's what I just read you in Romans 5. Romans 5, the law was brought in so the trespass might increase, and where death and sin reigned, grace increased all the more, right? So if the law brought the trespass to life and death, okay, what would be the punishment to rejecting deliverance from the law of death and going back to the law of death? Death. When? Because all of those people that were alive between the time before Jesus came into the world and when Jesus' ministry was over never died. I mean, they died at some point. But what I'm saying is there were people, there were genera a generation of people that lived from the old law transition to the new law. But even when they were in the old law, they were called dead, though they were still breathing. So the scripture defines death as something different than the American West defines death as. Sure, death is when you die, but that's not what this is talking about. Sure, death is when you breathe your last breath. But he's talking about a bunch of people who would go back into a law of death and would probably still live another few decades. You see what I'm saying? So they define death not as you stop breathing. They define death as you go back into a way of life that has rejected life. So you can be dead and still living at the same time in biblical terms. We see it all over the place. Turn on the news and you'll see it today. 
If you turn on the news today, you'll see people fully alive yet fully dead. You know what I'm saying? So how the Bible defines life is zoe. That is not breathing. Zoe life is not you and me breathing. Zoe life is life to the full. It's God life. So when it says his life was light to all mankind, the word life there is zoe. It's God life. And it's light to all mankind. So you can be alive, but not in what the Bible describes as life and be, by biblical definition, dead. Because it was never about what happens when you die. It was about his kingdom coming into the earth, right? And so your identity and what you do with your identity are not tethered. They are supposed to work together. But when you are in Christ, but you're living apart from Christ, see that tension? In, in the American West, we have no capacity to be able to see those two things at the same time, Right? For us, you're either in Christ or you're not. No. No. Everything exists in Christ. That's not even in question. So you can be in Christ, but living apart from Christ at the same time. Right? One of those has to do with who you are. The other one has to do with how you live in who you are. Right? So, I could be married, but I could go out tomorrow and completely reject the reality that I'm married and start living like a single person again, and that would not change the fact that legally I'm still married. It would just affect the fact that I'm not living as one who is married, but I'm still married. Or, for example, my dad's here, I could reject my dad, and I could say, I don't want to be your son anymore, and I don't want to be in this family anymore, and I could spend the rest of my life running from the family. But at the end of the day... When you take a blood test and he takes a blood test, we're in the same family. You can't run from that. So who your identity is and how much you're living in your identity are not the same thing. They can be. You can be fully alive and live fully alive and those two things run together, but those two things don't determine. Let me say it like this. The lesser doesn't determine the greater, right? So, so, when we were still godless, Christ died for us. How does that work? What is godless? It, it's living as if you're not in God. But the tension is, is that Jesus says all things exist in God, in the Son. So, you're in the Son, yet the Bible describes a time when you lived not in the Son or in God. You were Godless, which means not with God, right? So how do you have a situation where you're Godless, and yet your very existence is determined by the fact that you're in God? See what I'm saying? One of those is your identity. The other is how you're living as one in this identity. And even as I'm describing that, it's just like, which tells you how far we have driven. Like, see, this is all Orthodox Christianity. I mean, go read like Irenaeus. Go read Athanasius. Go read some of these guys, early church fathers. Don't go read Augustine. I mean, you know, God bless them. But anyway, but go read some of these guys, right? Go read them. And you tell me if they have a fire in them that we've never even seen. Even John Calvin 
would be puking at what Calvinism is. You know what I'm saying? I'd say this Tuesday night, but John Calvin did not describe total depravity as you being totally depraved. That's, that's not at all. John Calvin, I said this Tuesday, described it like this. If you took a giant pool of water, and it was pure, 100% pure water, and you took a blue food coloring little thing, and you squirted one dot of blue foot or red food coloring or whatever in that pool. At some point, that one drop is going to discolor the rest of the water in the pool. But it doesn't change the fact that 99.99999% of the pool is still completely pure 100%. That's what John Calvin called total depravity. And I don't even know if I necessarily agree with that, but I agree with it a lot more than what we say total depravity is today, which is everybody's completely evil inside and out. Because that's, that's lucrative. All right. So they saw these two different things, actions and identity. They saw them as two different things because they believe that everything has to do with here and now and that Yahweh has worked everything else out beyond that, right? If you go to the, Jew, or to the, to the Christian Jews and you say, what happens when you die? They would probably say something like this. We don't know, but we trust God. That, that easy. You know what I'm saying? Whereas today, we've got a million points and 7,000 pages of a book of what happens when you die, and it's all stuff that might be right. You know what I'm saying? But if we were supposed to know the fullness of that, let me tell you something. This is the book God wanted us to have. God was concerned with getting his world into our world, not teaching us how to get out of our world and get into his world that's actually coming here. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, so... For us, what we do determines who we are. For them, who you were was determined by God and made permanent by the Son. Therefore, what you did in life determined how much you live in the glory of God who made you and made you to be His glory. The reward or the punishment for your neglecting your true deliverance is a lost and out of sorts life now. It's living broken even though in reality you're completely whole. So Eugene, uh, Eugene Peterson, Lord, been reading too much. Um, Brennan Manning tells this story, and I wrote it in uh, my in my book last year. He tells this story. So there's two water pots that um, a water bearer uses to bring water to his master's house. Okay, I'm almost done. Isaiah, Isaiah, can you hop up here? There are uh, two water pots that this master uses, water bearer, excuse me, uses to bring water to his master's house. And so one of the pots was completely perfect. One of the pots had a crack in it. And so every day, the water bearer would go down to the water, scoop up water in these two water pots, and he would carry the water back to the master. But when he got back to the master, one, the water pot that didn't have the crack, poured an entire measure of water for the master. The cracked water pot poured half a measure for the master. And this happened day in and day out and day in and day out until it got to the point where the cracked pot looked at the whole pot and felt bad for itself because it was only bringing the master a half measure of water. Y'all with me? So the water pot that was cracked being down goes to the water bearer. This is a story, okay? Goes to the water bearer, and the water bearer says, what's wrong? And the cracked pot says, every single day, 
you go down to the water, scoop up water, but because of my crack, I can only deliver a half measure of that water to my master, but the other one delivers a full measure. And the, and the water bearer says, tomorrow when we make our journey to the water and back, I want you to look along the road as we walk. So they're going down the road, and on the side of the road where the uh, crack pot would normally be, there were flowers budding all over the place, beautiful flowers. They get down to the water, they scoop it up, they come back. On the way back, they see the flowers again. But they get to the master's house, and they pour out the water, and the crack pot still only provides a half measure of water. So he feels bad about himself again. The water bearer comes to him, and he says this. He says, uh, let me turn a little gate thing off of that, because that's going to drive me absolutely bonkers. There we go. You should be good now. The crack pot's down. The water bearer comes to the, to the crack pot, and the crack pot says, I saw the flowers. They're beautiful, but it doesn't change the fact that I still haven't provided the master with a full measure of water. And the water bearer says, what you do not see is that I have leveraged your crack to water seeds that I have planted along your side of the road so that every single day out of your side of the road, I can bring the master a bouquet of flowers that the other pot does not produce. I, I did not see your crack as something wrong with you. I saw it as something to leverage a new piece for the master into the story. We see our identity in our cracks. The, mat, the, the water bearer, Jesus, does not see our cracks. He sees who we really are and leverages even our cracks into the story. Listen, Judas betrayed Jesus. And Jesus leveraged Judas's betrayal to save the cosmos. <laughs> I heard somebody debating, two scholars debating this last week. Was Judas predestined to reject Jesus or not, Lord? And, um, and that's exact, that story hit me and it said, no, Judas comes to Jesus completely cracked up. The uh, tradition tells us that Judas, he was in charge of the money um, that would come into the ministry of Jesus, and that probably from day one he was stealing money out of Jesus' money for his own personal gain. Jesus knew this and still kept him around. Why? Because he leveraged Judas's cracks in order to bring glory to God and save creation. In order to bring create, listen, the tool that Jesus used to bring creation back into its original design was a broken person. And we see our brokenness as our identity. Jesus sees, and this is going to sound cliche, and this is going to sound like a tweet, but it is true. We see our brokenness as our identity. Jesus sees our brokenness as an opportunity to prove to us who we really are. 
Let me say it like this. We identify not just ourselves, but the people around us by what they do. Yeah. When Jesus begins to step in to this family and to others and begins to rewire us, we look at people and see their brokenness not as something to shun, as the church has so well done, but as an opportunity to see God's kingdom expand in a place that if no other way but Jesus invading their story would be absolutely wasted. But we have no grace to see that if we don't first see ourselves like that. So let me say it like this. This is the, this is the point number two that the Lord is gonna, about to send us into that caught me by surprise this week. This past year, we have been over and over and over teaching what it means that the Father is exactly like Jesus. Amen? Jesus, when you've seen me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Be afraid of anything that you believe about the Father that you cannot find in the Son. But let me say this. The Father is exactly like Jesus. And the Spirit is exactly like Jesus. So, we expect the Spirit to invade an environment and produce, in some expressions, absolute chaos. Right? And, and what that is... Do not mistake, with everything I just said, do not mistake the Lord meeting us where we are with the Lord sanctioning us remaining where we are. So when we are living lives, I've seen, I've seen this my whole life, people in chaos will get in an environment and pray for the Holy Spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit will come and, they will, and the Holy Spirit will meet them and us in the chaos so as to leverage the chaos to bring us into order. The problem is, is when the Spirit showed up and it looked chaotic, we thought that the Holy Spirit was coming to sanction our chaotic lives and never changed and never transformed into our true identity. And this is where you have revivals that last seven years and fizzle out. It's because the Holy Spirit did not show up to meet you where you are and sanction you to remain there. The Holy Spirit shows up where we are to bring us where He is. So what are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Huh? What is the, what is the, Jesus said this, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You'll know a tree by, so how do you know if someone is full of the Spirit? They're living in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruits of the Spirit. You know how I memorize those? A kid's song. So, yeah, yeah, right. You know what I mean? But see, so, so what we have been through is us learning that the Father is like the Son, what, I prom- what we're about to go into is realizing the Spirit is exactly like the Son as well. The Spirit is like... So let me say it like this. 
be afraid of anything you believe about the Holy Spirit you cannot find in the Son. <laughs> Woo! Uh, you see how that, see that's, we're about to go where no eye has seen. Be afraid of anything you believe about the Father you cannot find in the Son. Man, that's a stretch, but, I, but I, 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 maybe I can get, be afraid of anything you believe about the Spirit you can't find in the Son as well. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Here's what he said, that the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has quickened our mortal bodies, King James. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the power that lives in us. The Spirit comes into our lives to make God's fatherhood known, and it cries out, Abba, Father, which is exactly the Spirit that cried out through the Son. The Spirit of God is the Spirit in the Son working and moving. So we say things like, if you're, if you're a believer, you need to look like Jesus. Completely agree, because you've been given the Spirit of Jesus, which is the Spirit of God, which is fully God. The issue that we run into is when we live in the spirit that was in Jesus, but don't look like Jesus. And what I'm not talking about is praying. We need to do that, praying and, and speaking over people, etc. We need to do that. But what I'm also talking about is what the actual fruit of the spirit is, which is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. What I mean, what 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 if um, all, all these listen, what if all these 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 leaders and, and Christians and all that stuff that are so engaged in all this political talk that don't have a clue, that have no authority. The reason I try to keep my mouth shut on politics is because I am not qualified, and I know that. You know what I'm saying? I'm qualified to teach theology, not teach you what side of the aisle you need to be on. But so but but we get in this, and you know what we lack? We lack love. Lord, we definitely lack love. Definitely. <laughs> we lack joy. We lack peace. We lack joy. And the, the Spirit is coming in, and He's saying, I'm going to leverage those pieces of you to reveal who you really are, not to sanction you remaining like that. So the water bearer did not go to the crackpot and say, it's okay, man. Just, just, just be you. No. He said, you need to just be you because I'm leveraging what's within you to bring what no one else can bring. See, do you see that? Same with the prodigal son. The prodigal son, which is an awful title for him, comes home and the father runs and he meets him. And before he could repeat his sinner's prayer, the father says, son, you're home and restored everything to him. He did not say, hey, I'm glad you're back, but you got about four years of punishment waiting for you because you cost me a lot of money. No. He says, son, you're home. Here's everything you had when you left. Well, I didn't, I didn't do anything to deserve. Don't matter. You couldn't earn it anyway. The game is rigged. The game, the life is rigged. You cannot earn life. Why? Because it was always God's plan to give you life by way of the adoption that came through the Son. So the only ones who are living life to the full are the ones who would be daring enough to simply receive life to the full. I mean, that, I, I said this a few weeks ago, then I'm done, I'm done. I said this a few weeks ago. That's, that's our greatest blessing and our biggest problem. 
is, is we're teaching a gospel that you simply have to be bold enough to receive. And people don't want to receive. People want to do something. You know what I mean? What's a cause we can get behind? Here's a cause. On earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What, what, what's a mission statement we can get behind? Here you go. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lose your life to find it. Take up your cross and follow me. I mean, you take your pick. We got a countless number of mission statements. You know what I mean? Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. Not seek everything else and maybe you'll get the kingdom of God in return. Is seek first and only, I believe, the kingdom of God. And through that, everything else will be given unto you. You could search riches or you could search the riches of his goodness and receive everything else in return. Solomon, what do you want? All I want is wisdom to lead your people because I'm young and I don't know how. Amazing. I'm going to give you all the stuff you didn't even pray for. Seek the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. We're the smallest church in town, the smallest church in town, and we give away more resources, more money, more of uh, blessing, etc., than just about any other church in town. How do we do that? Because we're seeking the kingdom of God and he is continually giving us what we don't even strive for because of our remaining where he says this, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. There's key language in that. I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. And inheritance is only given to a son or daughter. So the hidden meaning in that is not just ask me and I'll give you whatever you want. It's ask me as one convinced of their childhood and I'll give you anything you want. It's not, it's not about pulling God's arm and saying in Jesus' name 87 times. It's about you being convinced that when he says you are the exact righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, you say, that makes sense to me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you've got to rewire your brain. I, I think me and Isaiah were talking about this this week. There's a difference in being prideful and full of pride. Right? Mike Bickle says that it is prideful to believe something about yourself that is other than what God believes about you. So false humility is pride. I'm just, I'm absolutely nothing. That's not what God says. God says you're everything. God says you're my dove that I have hid in a rock to reveal your beauty and to give you the grace to remove the foxes that are keeping you from seeing your beauty. There, that, you know what I'm saying? So it is illegal for us to believe that we're nothing when God says we're everything. So you can be proud of who you are without being prideful. But, but the point of the sermon today, and then I'm done. You can bow your heads, close your eyes, I'm going to pray over you. The point of the message today is this. We, we're, we're, going, we're going into a season where the Lord is going to not let us go until he's done with what he's trying to show us. And the next phase of that is twofold because the, the spirit of God is at work within you and I. So you can't talk about the spirit of God and not talk about what you and I are moving in as well. The next phase of this is for us to not just be convinced that the father is like the son, but to be fully convinced that the spirit is like the son as well. And if the Spirit's like the Son, so are you. So, Father, I pray right now 
over this group of people. I know that there's people watching online today or that will listen to this later. Um, Lord, I just pray over this family. I pray over those um, that listen to this from out of state, from afar, from pastors that find refuge in this that I talk to on a weekly basis. I pray over every single person that is encountering the message of hope that's encountering the message of what true wholeness is. And I pray that you would let this be like seed that is planted by streams of living water where trees will begin to grow up and their leaves never wither and their fruit is born in every season and that their roots sink so deep into the ground that they are never without water or nourishment, that they are constantly fed, that they're constantly restored, that there's no need to do anything but prune. And I pray that even in the pruning, we will realize that where we are is a, it's a fruit that we are bearing fruit. It is not a fruit that we're not what we're supposed to be. Pruning is a blessing for a tree or a vine that is bearing fruit. And so, Lord, I pray that in this family, as you are pruning us, you're pruning me. You're making me vulnerable in a way that I have never been before. You're making me think so... Let me say it like this. You're allowing me the grace to not take myself serious anymore in a bad way. In other words, you're giving me the grace to be me. And I believe you're doing that with everybody else in this family. I know you're doing that. I think it's a question of whether or not we're willing to take the path. But you are making us and our church exactly what it needs to be. And I heard the Lord say in worship that you didn't hide this. That your message didn't hide this. That your worship didn't hide this. That your people didn't hide this. It was I that hid you in the split open of the rock. I hid you on high so that I could tell you who you really were and so that the foxes that remained in the vineyard could be removed. However, however, the bondage of your barren winter's over. Lord, I pray that this would become something so much more than just a sermon or so much more than just a Tuesday night midweek. I pray that this would become life. I pray that we would begin to make decisions out of what we know that we are, out of what we have heard and been reiterated over and over and over again within us who we are, that we are not what we were told and that the gospel is not what we were told, or at least it is much more and far greater than we ever dreamed. It's exactly what we ever hoped though. So God, I pray that we'll believe in that gospel. We'll buy into the simple gospel. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.